Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hello, I'm Jonathan Bowman-Perks and welcome back to my favourite time of the week. And I'm very lucky to have Fiona Hathorn with me at the moment. And Fiona has had an incredible career thus far. She's packed in everything into her life. Um, I'm going to get her to talk about this in a minute. But really, uh, from, from being an investment manager and all the experience that she has working in the city to now the incredible things that she's doing for women and men on boards. And we're going to talk about that. So Fiona, welcome. Lovely having you here. Love to see you. And um, in, in a nutshell, just tell us some of the things that you're doing at the moment, and particularly the, the major things that you are most excited about. Uh, well, I'm the chief exec of an organisation called Women on Boards UK, yeah. which is an enabling network. Uh, I view that most people don't know about the boardroom. Mm -hmm. There's a boardroom for everyone, but most board positions aren't transparently advertised. So our network advertises board vacancies for free. Great. And I'm hugely proud that we've advertised 16,000 board vacancies since I launched this network in 2012. Um, but we're not really a course as such. Uh, we do lots of things, um, but mostly we hold people's hands and explain to them how to sell themselves onto a board because most people who join boards learn on the job. Yeah. And actually it's understanding your value add and how and do you understand the role of a non-executive director? I think that's a very good point because um, if it's chairman or NEDs or execs, they don't really have any training in this. So I think what you're doing is incredibly useful. Yeah, and it's difficult for everyone. It's yeah. difficult for women to get on boards. It's difficult for men to get on boards. Um, and even, you know, top partners at EY, PwC, chief exec of Tesco's and all, they imagine it's going to be easy. It's not. It's no. actually very, very competitive and it's I a serious it job. Exactly right. And so next I'm interested in um, talking about these, um, these inspiring leaders, these men and women you've met over the years. If there was one or two people that you'd choose who've inspired you, who would, who would it be and what were their qualities that inspired you? Well, I'd have to mention Philippa Gould, who was my first boss. Uh, yeah. My first job was being a trainee fund manager looking at Japanese equities, and Philippa Gould was my first boss. So she was enormously helpful. Uh, you and I were discussing uh, were earlier that we're both dyslexic. Yeah. And she identified that um, my writing wasn't very good, <laughs> and she was asking me to write investment reports. And she really spent ages, a bit like going to see the, the peb mistress on yeah, you know, okay. red pen. Red but she showed me to say, what do you actually want to say? Okay, we'll write that down then. Yeah. And so she was very supportive when I was very embarrassed yeah. um, about my dyslexia, although I didn't know I was dyslexic at the time. Yeah. Um, so Philip, I'd have Philip to mention. Well. I would also mention John Ainsworth. Okay. John Ainsworth was the um, CIO and then chief executive of Hill Samuel Asset Management. Mm -hmm. And he was fantastic when I had children. Brilliant. Because when I had kids, he promoted me when I was eight months pregnant. Gosh. Uh, that's to me inspired. Yeah. Um, it got me back very, very quickly. He gave me my dream job. If I'm honest, then I thought he was bonkers. Yeah. Um, absolutely fantastic. He supported me, whether it was giving me a car park space. He also gave me full pay. 
Wow. During my maternity leave, he did absolutely everything to facilitate me coming back. And if there were two qualities that stood out for you with those two people, a man and a woman, what, what inspiring leadership qualities did you admire about them? Uh, well, with Philippa, it would be very much her intellect. Mm. I mean, she was sharp. She was really, really sharp. Um, and in terms of being a very, very good fund manager, she was strategic. Um, what she saw in me was my ability to engage with clients. Mm. Um, I don't think I was a particularly good fund manager. I was yeah. good with people. So she worked out Those what strengths. our different Those skill strengths. sets were and, and, and how we would put themselves good. together. Good. With John Ainsworth, um, he was a comprehensive Yorkshireman yep. who was working in the city of London and he absolutely hated the club culture. Yeah. So when he became chief investment officer, he decided that he would look after any minority and it didn't matter whether you're a woman, a man or anything, he would work out how to get the best out of you. Fantastic. And that, that's what made a difference to me. Yeah, that's really great. And then um, we all need to learn from our mistakes and um, I'm sure like me, you've made a few mistakes over the years. If you were to pick out uh, a mistake you've made as a leader, leading others, what, which one would you choose? What story would you tell? And, and how has that shaped you as a better leader today? Well, I think we've all made mistakes. Um, the one I'm most embarrassed about um, is not being a good role model. Mm -hmm. I think role model is important. I was a role model in the city. I was ahead of a desk. Uh, there were hardly any women. And I could have helped other women. Yeah. But maybe we'll go on to it later in terms of my family background and what made me different. Um, I didn't see that um, other women needed support and advice, particularly when having children, yeah. um, because I didn't find it difficult. Well, I looked like superwoman. Mm. I wasn't superwoman. If you pushed me too far, I would have burst into tears. Yeah. But I was really good at hiding it. Yeah. And now I realize sharing those stories and providing a support structure, and I had the capacity to do that, yeah. and I didn't, and that I regret. You're so right, Fiona. And uh, Lee, in her book, Inspiring Women Leaders, when she interviewed various women, a number of them said that they they wished other women had helped them up or, yeah. or and, and they seemed so contained and they seemed to have it all. But actually, when they got to know them, they realized they were very human. And it's, it's just they didn't quite share it. Well, there's something called the Queen Bee Syndrome. And yeah. um, I actually don't ever have a go any man or any woman who is not. Uh, they, they don't understand. They don't get it. Yeah. I didn't get it. Um, and I always say, if we're not having a go at Dave and Fred and Bob, why are we having a go at Jenny? Yeah. She doesn't get it. And I didn't get it. And I could have been one of your fabulous female blockers. If, mm. my, if John Ainsworth had said, we need to do something for minorities, even though he'd been helping me, I wasn't even aware he was doing it. Yeah. And I'd have probably said, oh, don't be ridiculous. If you're good enough, you'll get there. Yeah. Well, yeah. I don't believe that now. Very wise. And what would you end with your top tip? for an uh, inspiring leadership tip that you've found has helped you and helped other people who you've worked with that you'd like to pass on to others to listen well, to? Well, for me, my top bit tip would be to join a board. You mm. are never too young. Uh, many people, particularly in the city of London, uh, in these very large organisations, are not close enough to the C-suite mm. at that leadership level. They may be earning a lot of money. So my top tip is to get on a board, a community board, and really learn what it's like to be floating at the top of an organisation. You don't know what you know until you get out of some of these big organisations. Mm. It's very empowering, very re rewarding, and really good for society as well. Yeah. Fiona, thank you. You're welcome. Really great having you on the uh, Inspiring you. Leadership series. Thank and you uh, we're going to chat more later on, but thank you. You're Good welcome. Time.
Hello, I'm Jonathan Bowman-Perks, and welcome back to Inspiring Leadership Extra, where I'm with Fiona Haythorn, and we are now going to go into your life and some experiences you've had and uh, who've been leadership role models to you and things like that, Fiona. Um, you've had a fascinating life as we began to talk about this with a, a really role model father and mother, which is quite different, and, and it's probably helped make the, uh, the woman you are today, the leader you are today, but... Tell, tell us a bit about your upbringing. Uh, well, I was born in Hong Kong. Yeah. Uh, my father was in the RAF. So he was stationed there for uh, about three years. I mm. came home when I was six months old, so I can't lay claim to much of that. But as a result of him being in the RAF up till the time I was about 12, we moved every two or three years. Mm -hmm. um, so that shaped who I am, being that new kid in school. Mm -hmm. um, and I found that very, very easy, joining schools. I'm a very sociable person, so yeah. that didn't cause me a problem. I think my brother found it a little bit harder. Yeah. Uh, but I spent most of my childhood at Biggin Hill Air Base. Oh, yeah? where my father was squadron leader at the time. And um, I think you mentioned that your father was a fighter pilot. Yeah. So my father was asked to put together the training program and selection program for fighter pilots. Oh, yeah. um, so I had a lovely childhood. But I what I think makes my childhood slightly different is my father was one of the first Burslem boys from Stoke-on-Trent to go to university. And explain about the Burslem boys. Um, so Burslem, uh, he, he, Stoke-on-Trent, uh, is a, it was a mining town. It's also a pottery town. So my father lived in back-to-back -back housing. Yeah. Um, so they didn't have very much money. And his mother ran the corner shop. Yep. But like luck plays a part in life um, because getting access to good education is really, really important. And in those days, uh, if you were a, a boy from the background that my father was, there was no way you were going to go to university. He'd never even heard of university. His mother hadn't heard of university. But when he was about eight or nine, one of the teachers at school came to see his mother with him and said, this is a really exceptional child and wow. we need to get him to go to university. And through that, she coached him all the way. And he tells me that he actually got a scholarship to a boarding school, but they then couldn't afford the school uniform. Oh, yeah. So the whole town, and he was part of the Methodist church. His mother was very, very... Um, um, big part of the Methodist Church, decided that they would save for years and years and years to make sure that when he did go to university, he had uh, proper outfits yeah. and the right thing to wear. Yeah. Um, but there's a, there's a whole backstory in terms That's of the people that supported him. So that plays a part but in What qualities did Dad have that, that uh, you've taken with you into the work you do? Uh, my father is um, a very good communicator, so he's a very good presenter. Still alive today? Yes, still alive, and um, he taught me how to present well. Um, in addition to that, my father was a magistrate. Um, he was, uh, when he left the RAF, he became um, a principal of a technical college. Mm -hmm. So there were always meetings going on at home. You know, there was always the police authority would be so having So you're seeing a, a boardroom in your kitchen all, table? All, always a boardroom of something yeah, going on. Yeah. So my father was on public sector boards. Um, and if, when I was younger, he didn't have childcare because my mother was a deputy headmistress of a school, um, he would just take me along. Really? So I would sit and just sort of suck up all sorts of different environments. But when he realised that I was struggling with English, um, he decided to help me become a good presenter. And he had to really work hard to make me believe that I could be a captain of industry, which when he first said it, I thought was hilarious. Mm. Um, uh, and uh, he insisted I went to university. And when you're a, a 13, 14, 15 and you don't feel you're good enough, 
Um, you really need somebody to help you get over the line. Yeah. Uh, and I have my father as a fantastic role model and a supporter. So yes, I, I went to Oxford Brooks. Yeah. I did business studies, absolutely loved it. Um, and he supported me all the way. And really giving me a window on life. Yeah. You could do this, you could do that, you could do the other. So I didn't need careers advice. I had masses of stuff. And, and my, a huge motivator as well, wasn't it? Huge he? motivator. And my father would pick up all sorts of uh, friends of family and he would come and say, what do you mean you want to do X? Why don't you think about A, B, C, D, E? And he would just open because somebody had done that in his life. It, because he, they, he'd opened the opportunities yeah. wider. He'd had a huge amount of opportunities yeah. um, and uh, ne nothing had ever closed him down. And he was determined to make sure nothing closed his children yeah. down, but also his friends' children. So he did a lot for society um, and has always been a big contributor. And that's yeah. what makes me. And you mentioned also, yeah, the, the, how he helped motivate your mother, who's achieved a lot. And, and so... Both parents have been quite inspirational. Tell, tell us a bit about your mother. Well, my mother, um, she failed her 11 plus. So I am very, very anti uh, segregation in school because it had a devastating effect on my mother. And she only failed it by like one point, but it meant that she didn't get to the grammar school. So my mother left school when she was 14 or 15. Um, and her first job, I think, was at Keele University, where she was one of the professor's secretaries. Mm. Now, she enjoyed working. She really enjoyed it. But when she married <coughs> my father, who was an officer in the RAF, and they were moving around, she very quickly had children. And I don't think she thought she could work at the same time, but she did enjoy working. And my father had a chat with her and said, well, you know, why don't you think of what you can do when the kids are a little bit older? And again, this background of her failing of 11 plus immediately came out. And he just laughed and said, mm. well, go and get your A-levels. I'll mm. help you. Mm. So he encouraged my mother and she did a teacher training college at a time where they were supporting um, women and men who had caring issues, yeah. i.e. they needed to pick the kids up at three, three o'clock and also drop them off. Um, so the whole course was around that schedule uh, and my father supported uh, my mother doing that and if I was off my father would just take me to work and when you're senior you can do anything you like. And this is amazing and so from that upbringing you went into the city and you had a, a career I mean you began at PwC I believe as a, a year as an accountant yes. at PwC which I was at PwC for but not as an accountant I, I couldn't add up if I helped myself and um, more as a management consultant but you then got into the sort of the um the investment side would tell us a bit about that well um my i always knew that i wanted to go into the city i don't think i really knew why um but because i'd done a business studies degree i noticed some of the chaps i was on the course with like reading the ft mm. um so i whatever anybody else is doing i'm a really good observer so I thought, well, okay, I need to read the FT and see what it's about. So I started to read about companies. I started to understand what a unit trust was, what a pension fund was. Um, so I had this sort of fantasy mm -hmm. about joining the city, uh, but I didn't have any connections uh, to get in. And it was just around the time of what we describe as Big Bang, mm. when we went from um, the jobber and the broker sort of networking, relationships, chatting, the stock exchange almost being, being like the old coffee shop, to electronic trading. Mm. So it was a good time when change was happening. Um, so the American investment banks were coming in, things were becoming more transparent. So I just happened to be at a party um, and I was working for PwC at the time and I met a headhunter who told me Hillside Asset Management were looking for graduate trainees. So 
I'm one of those individuals who, if I hear something, I then follow it through. So yeah. the next morning, I, I think I probably wrote it down, put it in my pocket, called this headhunter up who laughed. I, I don't, he couldn't even remember talking to me. Yeah. Um, and he said, but what I told him he'd said when he was drunk the night before was actually true. And he put me in touch with Hill Samuel. But for me, joining the city um, as a trainee fund manager, it was... It wasn't that blokey on the asset management side, but certainly on the dealing desk side, or all the corporate events were very blokey, Formula One, golf, um, rugby, and all sorts of, yeah. sorts of things. Um, my background uh, being an officer's daughter, and the fact that I was in that environment all the time uh, made a real difference because yeah. I was used to people screaming and shouting at each other. Yeah. And when my dad would take me to Biggin Hill Air Base and he would shout at Squaddy and say, you will be looking after said four-year-old for four hours, do you understand? That banter and that pithy, sharp focus. So anybody gave me... Uh, I shouldn't say deep shit, but really, you know, awful chat. You just in the trading, it back. I would just uh, deal, deal it back. It was like playing tennis. I would yeah. smack it back hard. So it didn't affect me. And it certainly affected other individuals. Yeah. I don't think I was aware of it at the time. Well, that was something earlier you talked about. And I, I think it's a very interesting one. Now you're dealing with so many issues around uh, women and boards and, and giving everybody a good chance. It, is that, you know, you were... Um, almost hardened and resilient to this tough environment. Yes. Uh, and you got on with things and you made it happen and people gave you chances like the boss you talked about earlier. But talk to me a bit more about the fact that others were struggling and they needed help, but you perhaps didn't realise at the time it was an oversight from you just weren't aware, perhaps more aware of others and just how much they were struggling. Um, if my chief executive, um, who was a great inspiration to me, John Ainsworth, had come to me and said, we need some initiatives uh, because we're a very um, pale male and stale environment. Most of us have all been to public school. I didn't go to public school, actually. I was a comprehensive school guy. But if he, girl, if he'd said that to me, I would have just laughed. I'd have just said, if you're good enough, you'll get there. I changed my mind when I became an angel investor. I was working with a group of individuals without spending our own capital, and it's a bit like Dragon's Den. The mm. entrepreneurs come and pitch capital. Um, so I thought um, life was fair and life was equal. I didn't understand the privilege I'd had um, by being married to mm. uh, Graham and Jackie Baskerville, my you know, marriage, you know, that, them being my parents. And what I saw was male entrepreneurs pitching for capital, and we would spend hours talking about their business ideas. When a woman came to pitch, we didn't discuss any of them. And I mean any of them. Now, I didn't mind not discussing, you know, two or three of the women because their pitches were useless. But so many of the guys' pitches have been useless at the same time. Um, and it was one particular uh, woman, I won't, I'll just call her Sophie, um, who was extraordinary. She'd uh, launched a business before, she's exited it, she was investable, she had a great product. And it's when we didn't discuss Sophie. And I said to the chair, and these were men that I worked with for years, uh, who'd always included me. Yeah. Um, and I said to, um, David was chairing at the time, and I said, David, what am I missing? And he just laughed at me. And he said, oh, Fiona, darling, you don't get it, do you? And I said, no, I don't, David, you know, engage me, you know, explain this new world to me of angel investment. And he said, she might have a baby she's not having our cash end of. And it was wow. a light bulb moment to me, total light bulb, because it never occurred to me that anybody having a baby was a problem. And I said to the, this group of men, I said, but I've had two babies. Um, in fact, you promoted me when I was eight months pregnant. Mm. Believe me, millions of people have babies. It's not difficult. It's not 
you know, it depends on the circumstances of the birth, but let's not go, go there. Um, but she's, you know, in all the challenges she's going to have in a, as a business, it's not going to be an issue. And uh, he just said, well, you having a baby, that was never going to be an issue. And then I realised that I was different. And I realised that one of the blokes, thing, really? yeah, I, I realised that there was something called unconscious bias or conscious bias, and in this case, it was conscious bias. And I wasn't ready for those discussions until I'd had that light bulb moment. Mm. And it just so happened that the government was looking at the lack of women on boards at the time. Yeah. Um, so it was 2011. So that's coincidence. And I ended up being invited to various women on boards events. And that's when I realised we needed an organisation like Women on Boards UK to come in and help people. Because what you had was the great and the good sitting on panels, only talking about FTSE boards. And actually what they were doing was unintentionally putting everyone off. They were telling us all, it's very important to have diversity of thought in the boardroom, challenge, um, innovation, all these things. But by the way, none of you are good enough. Because unless you've been a chief exec of a FTSE 100 company, then it's not going to happen. So I thought, well, what's the point in all of these events? And I realised, because I've been a fund manager, there's all sorts of boards. There's charity boards, there's public sector boards. Um, and the earlier that you can get in the board experience, the better. But that's partly my background, is because I've always been included, mm. I really notice now when people aren't included. Yeah. And my father and my mother spent all, have spent all their lives including and supporting people. And for some reason my lens, it helped me get to where I got to in the city, but I hadn't noticed my privilege. Yeah. And I noticed my privilege when I became an angel investor. That's really interesting. And, and also this shift from being in a quite focused and goal-orientated, what we call teleological, to, to actually reading other people, the, developing the emotional and social intelligence. Because you, you know, people, it's always mm. been people, you've always been very gregarious from what you've said. But how did you start to read and notice the excluded rather than the included and the ones who felt left out and you saw that people were feeling down or they were holding themselves back? What did you do to develop that ability to read I others? I think I've always been um, very kind and open to people. But I think what I didn't do as a leader was show vulnerability. Mm. I had learned to be what I would describe as chameleon in nature. Mm -hmm. I would work out the environment, understand who the influences were in the room, work out what my skill set was and how I was going to contribute to something. Um, so I always had a little micro strategies all of the time. Yeah. Um, and I realised that uh, because of the male-dominated environment that I'd been brought up in, whether it was the RAF um, or this in the city, the people didn't show their vulnerability. Yeah. They went to win all of the time. Yeah. And I think it's... Whilst I was very aware of other people, um, I hadn't shown my vulnerability to other people. So yeah. my vulnerability was, yes, I didn't find it easy bringing up children. I didn't find the juggle easy, but I didn't tell anybody and I didn't talk to anybody about it. So I would have appeared like Superwoman. Um, and if I'd shared some of those stories, and I think what's happening with regard to the conversations about what is our culture... And we can talk about the financial crisis and why the financial conduct authority is saying, I want you to define your culture. Hmm. Because if you can't define it, you can't explain it. If you can't explain it, you don't understand it. Hmm. And if you think about ESG, environmental, social and governance, and the reporting that one needs to do to the younger generation coming in or to shareholders, 
because you've got a whole voting system now in terms of are you ESG ranked? You know, whether you're BP or you're Lego using plastic, there's lots of different companies out there. And I think for me, it, it, there's just so much to understanding um, how to create a diverse culture, an open culture, which enables performance. Because for me, even though I run women on boards, I'm not always a fan of women's networks. Um, what I, What's the downside of women's networks? It's, it, when I say women's networks, minority networks, yeah. lots of companies are setting up minority networks. And the research is very, very clear. A minority has to ha have somewhere to go to get support mm -hmm. because they might be in one department and there might be support in another department. So that is a conduit to support somebody. Mm -hmm. um, the next thing is uh, once you set up a network, understand what its mission its outcome and its budget should be. If you were doing anything else in business, you would define what you wanted to achieve out of this network. And what you tend to find, there are some very good women's networks and minority networks within companies and externally, but most of them are run alongside people's day jobs. Mm -hmm. And if you don't carefully monitor what your mission is and how you're going to measure the outcome, mm -hmm. then they can go happy clappy and do all sorts of different things. So you have people who are not experts driving something, you get hidden agendas, and that concerns me. Yeah. Um, but if you th the argument that uh, minorities need networks, because we know those people who get on tend to have strong networks. Mm. And certain minorities, if you take women in particular, they sometimes can be child, um, time short. That's a big subject about child rearing and all that sort of stuff. Um, so by creating quality industry networks, you can allow yourself to create a network in a more efficient way than maybe the majority have created their network. So there's a whole load of advantages, but actually the research coming out of Harvard at the moment on minority networks, so the, the most important thing that you can achieve from a network internally or an industry network is that your minorities can get tips on how to avoid landmines. Yeah. And actually what that network is achieving to say a male banking network they're actually achieving two different things. So I think it's really important to understand why have we set it up? What are we expecting to achieve? Very good. And you were just earlier talking about some of, you know, recognition of some of your own vulnerabilities. And particularly, I'm interested in this whole point of humility. Um, and I think somebody said humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. So in other words, you're thinking of other people. You're more present with people. You're interested in others. Um, what would you say... Uh, but also humility is, um, it's not downplaying who you are. It's important to know your strengths, but also to be open and honest about your vulnerabilities and your weaknesses. What would you say, looking back, you know, you've learned from some of your vulnerabilities and your weaknesses? And also, what would you, what story would you share of perhaps the darkest part of your life when you've, you've, you've had a really tough time, but you've learned something from it and it shaped you as a, as a leader? Um, I have had difficult times in my life. Um, my first difficult time was when I was about 12 and uh, I was told my father had cancer. Um, his cancer was Sorry. so bad that he went to a hospice to die and I was told that I wasn't going to see him again. Wow. Now, 
I was, it affected my brother far more than it affected me. Uh, but I learned a lot through that. And I'm pleased to say my father is still alive. Wow. And there is a huge backstory in terms of what medical breakthrough they had and why he survived. And we only know that today. We didn't know that at the time. Um, but that had a, an enormous effect on me. And it had an effect on me because it had an effect on my mother. Yeah. She was very, very happy that she worked because she was so scared of what would happen when my father died and we were preparing for him to die and to not have the income and not yeah. have the house. Yeah. But that made me realise I always wanted that independence. And my mother, even when she had the choice not to work, carried on working because of the, the shock to her system of yeah. being vulnerable. So I learned from that. Because you're um, going to carry on working you know, as long as you can. I love working. And yeah. I think, you know, particularly when you're juggling children, and even when I had children, there were phases. For me, the baby time was the easiest. Yeah. The hardest time for me was the um, 10, 11, 12, 13 time when they're transitioning to senior school. What, what age are your children now? Uh, my eldest is nearly 24 and right. my youngest is nearly 22. Yeah, good So age. one's at university and one's just started his full-time job. So he's finally off the payroll, yeah. uh, which is great. <laughs> Thank you, but my dad. The, 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 you know, I have taken time out. There have been struggles that, you know, one of my child might have been having or my husband's business yeah. were having. And we, you just have to look into your family situation and say, what are we going to do that's right for us and also the family finances? And then I dipped out of a career. But I know the first time I did it, I dipped out for too long. Yeah. Um, and actually, it really affected my sense of self. Yes. Because I felt I was just serving and supporting other people, but not being enriched enough. So I've always got involved in local community projects. That's why I got involved in angel investment. And for me, I've actively managed my options. Yeah. I mean, and, you, and you've got um, involvement in so many things. I have great admiration and I encourage people to look at your uh, your LinkedIn profile to, to see some of those things. And, and what about taking from um, that darker time to lighter times when if you look at the different things you've done, if there are a couple of things you're proudest of uh, being involved in, what, what would they be? Um, I'm most proud probably of setting women on boards up because we are technically a limited company, but actually we're a social enterprise. Uh, none of the founders, uh, Rowena Ironside or Rachel Tranter or myself, are doing this to make money. Um, but we have to make sure we cover our costs. Um, we've got seven full-time staff, part-time staff. We've got guest presenters. It's an engine. It's a machine. Mm. Um, and if you really want to make it as affordable and transparent to all, it's not about making money. So I'm very, very proud of that. Mm. Um, there are choices that one has to make. So I've often dropped my social life in terms of my own girlfriends and structures. Um, but the other thing I'm proud of is that I started Help Start, a shooting syndicate. All right. And okay. I'm not so involved now. Uh, another lady uh, really took it forward. It, it was more her idea than my idea, but I introduced her to clay pigeon shooting. And I'm hugely proud of that because why did I learn to play golf? And again, we mentioned my father. My father did play golf, so I had an understanding of it. But when I was working in the city, I realised that all this corporate entertainment was going on um, and I was missing out. Mm. So I went go-karting, I went to golf, I went to Formula One. I did all of those things, but there's a cost to my sort of girlfriends, mm. a different structure. All my friends were through corporates and work. Um, and I think when you're thinking about networking, I like the sort of... Um, 
some of the INSEAD research on this, there's three types of network. There's your operational network, the network you need to do your job. Most of us are relatively good at that. There's the strategic network, which is work-related, the conferences. Um, and a lot of women and minorities drop that, uh, particularly when children coming on. I mm. didn't. And then there's the personal network, which is maybe the school gate. It could yeah. be Ireland. And, and it's blurring the work-life boundaries. I've been very focused on operation and strategic, and I've dropped my personal network. I'm good at blurring the work-life boundaries and bringing personal into my business. Mm. But I, if I have one regret is I wish I'd spent more time on that. And I've, I need to make time for it. Mm. Um, you know, I'm very good at running courses on strategic thinking and change management. But the one course that I don't run it, but I set it up is about leading purposefully. Mm -hmm. What is the company's purpose? What's your purpose? And how are you as a leader? And that actual workshop, when I was observing it, made me cry. Right. Because it made me realize that I've got some of my priorities wrong. Yeah. And if you are going to achieve anything, writing down what you want to achieve, when you're going to do it, breaking it down into sections. I'm really good at doing that in a work situation, but the whole one third of this workshop was about your personal life. Yeah. And I realized that I dropped that. Yeah. So I, I can be a bit too ruthless yes. on myself. And actually that has an impact on my family and other people. Um, mm. It's all very good helping other people and running around, but you have to keep the whole thing in balance. So before we go into your final top tips, um, and you've got a few good ones, I think. Um, in this personal life, um, how do you look after your mental and physical health and well-being? Because, you, you know, you are very stretched. If I, I don't know how you physically do it all in managing your time. But you're working with other people who sometimes don't look after their health and well-being. And, uh, you know, we know uh, various people whose mental health or physical health has been seriously affected. How do you look after yours, just you personally? Oh, I, I, I'm, I understand uh, mental health. I've been exposed to people with mental health issues um, in my extended family. So I really do get that. And I think my priority is often to make sure that I don't put the way I work and the expectations that I have of myself onto other people yeah. because I'm lucky in the sense that I have never suffered from a mental health issue. I am a very happy-go-lucky person and therefore I can be a bit of a workaholic and it's really, really important that I don't, yeah. as a role model, I'm the wrong type of role model. Yeah. If yeah. you see what well, I mean. My wife is also a workaholic. And it, so it's really does. making sure that I don't have those expectations and yeah. that is giving people time. Yeah. Uh, and saying, you know, I'm not expecting you to do this. So I'm learning, for example, to um, delay the emails that I send just because it's convenient for me to do it on a Sunday morning or a Saturday afternoon. Mm. Uh, my husband's a bit of a workaholic as well. Um, just because I've got older children, it's very, very important I spend time because I know, um, and the, the physical well-being, I, I'm not Historically, I've been sporty, yeah. um, but I'm not that sporty. So I have these various tapes that I attempt to jump up and down to yeah. um, because I know that as I'm getting older, I need to work on that a little bit more. Good. So let's end with uh, your, your final top tip. What would it be if you were to give a leadership tip to people listening? Uh, there's a couple of tips. The first one is to think about your career strategically mm -hmm. as a lifelong project. 
So to me, it's a 40-year project because every decision you make has a consequence. Um, And the... uh, I also think it's very important to understand and know about the boardroom from a very young age. Yeah. Um, so I'm very pleased that a school has just become a corporate member of Women on Boards and we're going to be doing workshops on the role of the board to the lower six because they, they, there are boards out there, there will be university club boards, mm. there'll be student union boards, there'll be a mental well-being board. Mm. There, there's so many boards out there, but often when we talk about boards, we only think of the FTSE. So to me, um, my top tip is you're never too young to be in the boardroom. Mm-hmm. Um, consider boards, look out of the window. What's the governance structure of that thing? It could be your housing association. Mm-hmm. Um, and my top tip would be to get on, on some of those boards because even if you take a career break, which I have done on two occasions, um, I've always been involved in a board in angel investment or in something, and that's creating options. And every decision I've made made has been conscious in terms of the financial impact that it's going to have on me and my long-term survivability. So that would be my top tip, is understand the role of the board and get involved. Great. Fiona, that's been absolutely fascinating. We could have talked for many hours longer. Um, I really appreciate your candor and, uh, and also sharing your experience. And please keep doing the amazing work you're doing, but thank you for your time. Thank you very much. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, Get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.